every good story has a time when it seems, even if just for a moment, that the bad guy will prevail. There's a time when it seems like Voldemort will get the best of Harry Potter, or that Thanos will defeat all the superheroes, or that the Wicked Witch will get not only Dorothy, but her little dog too. And we know that tension and suspense makes for an exciting story to watch. But we also know that the same tension and suspense does not make for an exciting story to live. One of the real distressing things about our world is that there are plenty of times, and sometimes they feel like far more than just moments, where the wicked prosper and where evil is prevailing. And whether that plays out in the world events or in in our lives, we want to believe that things are going to be okay. And now the the Christian story, the, the Bible, it teaches us that there are three main things that oppose the purposes of God. That we've traditionally have been referred to as the flesh, the world, and the devil. And so you can think of the flesh as our sinful, as our selfish desires that we all have, that where we can do things that are wrong. The, the world can refer, can refer to the systems, to the patterns of life, the assumptions and practices of any cultures that are opposed to the way of God so that the default setting, the normal way of being, has us in some way that just go against God's ways. And of course, the, the devil is a personal agent of evil who uh, seeks to deceive, who brings disintegration, who wants to separate the things that God has joined together, wants to separate God from humanity, wants to separate people from people, wants to separate us from our own selves, us from nature. Now these ideas, especially the devil one, could seem a little bit medieval. They, They might not seem like it's something that proper folk should believe in these days. But when I look at the world around me, as I read about events in the news, as I learn about the details of times past, like in the Holocaust or the Rwandan genocide, or even when I consider something that happened to to a friend of mine just a couple years ago, it's hard to shake the idea that evil is is real, that there is real evil at work in our, our world. And it's not hard to want it to not prevail. Now, one way of looking at the ministry of Jesus, especially in Mark, is that it's a showdown of Jesus against the powers of evil. Who will prevail? Our passage today shows that because of Jesus's ultimate, because of Jesus's ultimate authority, God's ultimate purposes cannot be frustrated. Because of Jesus' ultimate authority, God's ultimate purposes will prevail. And so as we look at this, we'll we'll look at Jesus' authority demonstrated, his authority challenged, and his authority proven. So first, let's take a look at his authority demonstrated. Jesus has just called some of his first disciples, as we read about last week, and immediately he gives them a front row seat 
to his, to his ministry. They go to Capernaum, about a mile and a half down the road from where we believe that, J- that Jesus called them. And uh, they go to th- this town, which is where Peter's mother-in-law lived. It will eventually serve as Jesus' home, home base. It's a town of about 1,500 people in the time of, of, of Jesus that revolved around fishing and a trade route that went all the way up to Syria. And the community life in this small town would have revolved around the synagogue that was there. Now, the synagogue would have served as a a community meeting place in general, but on the Sabbath, it would also be the religious center of the town. And in this context, we see Jesus' demonstration of his unique authority. Uh, the, The synagogue services there would have consisted of prayers, a reading from Jewish scriptures, uh, a meditation, a homily on that text, and then a closing benediction. Sounds kind of familiar, right? And so it's in this context when Jesus was likely giving his homily that, that we read made people astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now Mark, more than any other gospel, talks about Jesus' teaching, but less than any other gospel tells us what that teaching is. So we might read this and be like, Mark, you're skipping the best part. What was he saying that made people so astonished and, and amazed? But I, I think if we look at the context, we can kind of fill in the gap. So earlier, we read how Jesus' main message, the main point of his ministry was, what, what was this? That he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. So if that was his main message, then you could imagine Jesus going into this synagogue, reading something from the Jewish, from the Jewish scriptures and saying, this is fulfilled right now. This is happening right now because of me. And in fact, we don't have to imagine that because in Luke 4, that's exactly what he did. He read, part of, he read part of Isaiah and he said, this scripture is fulfilled now in your hearing. And so you can imagine how people would be amazed by the authority for him to be teaching like that. That's not how people tend to teach. In those days, what the rabbis would do is they'd quote older rabbis and say, well, this is what people have said. It's not too unlike how Father David or Mother Megan or Father James or I or other people do up here. If we're ever saying things that's departing from what Christians have generally taught for centuries, then you should call our bishop because we're probably departing from something that is key about Christianity. But what Jesus was doing is is he was saying, look, this stuff, he's giving a radically new interpretation of what the scriptures meant. And and that's why when we look at things from the Old Testament, we don't read them the same way as our Jewish friends do. We say that everything there, that Abraham and Isaac, that Abraham and Abraham and Isaac, that Abraham and Isaac and the Joseph narrative and the Exodus, that all these things point to and tell us what Jesus is like and the work that he is going to, to do. And, and, and so when Jesus is teaching, he's saying, look, this all points to me. This is how the world works. This is what God's word is actually says. And I can say it because I have that authority. I'm the author. I'm the one who made this 
world. That is the nature of his authority. And that is why the people are astonished. And if this is true, if this is the nature of the authority that Jesus has, then that means that he has authority over you and me. That he alone can determine what is ultimately right and wrong. So just a quick question before we move on is, do do we see Jesus as our ultimate authority? Do we recognize that in our in our lives? And if not, then then what are the, the voices that challenge his influence in 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 our lives? We in our flesh, to use a term from, from earlier, will often look to other authorities. But Jesus here shows, his teaching demonstrates that he has the ultimate authority. So our flesh may challenge his authority, but we see another challenge to Jesus' authority as we read through our story. It says, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus' authority is immediately challenged by an unclean spirit which is a phrase that Mark uses interchangeably with the word demon. And before we talk about how this is a challenge to Jesus' authority, we kind of have to address the elephant in the, in, uh, the room here. Like, demons? Like, really? Like, maybe you might think, okay, I, I get it. Like, those ancient people didn't have categories for disorders of mental health, and so this was just the language they used to talk about that stuff. Or maybe you're more like me, where I I grew up in church, so I was like, well, I have to believe the Bible. Of course demons are are real. But I also grew up in public schools. I'm very grateful. I'm so grateful for my public school education. I think when I was in high school, it was the time that I was surrounded by the most smart people I've ever been around in my whole life. But every system of education has its shortfalls. And one in this, in... 15 years ago was that the default assumption from my education was that the only thing that exists are the things that we can touch, are the things that we can see, are the things that we can prove that are real from a scientific point of view. And so while I would have said, oh, demons are real, I implicitly acted as if like, well, not not really. And, And so it was easy for me to think that like, well, demons don't actually exist in, in the world. They're easy for, for me to pray as if God isn't actually going to do something in the world. For different reasons, we can read this passage and, and have some qualms about it, right? But whatever our qualms may be, I don't think the Bible gives us easy outs to try and explain away demons for our modern time. Uh, We cannot be like Thomas Jefferson who picked out the parts of the Gospels that he didn't like and just kept the parts that he did. Paul said that all scripture is useful for for teaching, not just the parts that makes us comfortable. And the Bible, when it talks about demons, it might make us uncomfortable. But I think if we read the Bible on its own terms, we can see that it's not just some ancient way of talking about mental health. And there are just two quick things here. For, for one, the Gospels never uses the language of healing in association with demons. Jesus did a ton of healing, right? 
And in the Gospels, there are two words in Greek that are used to refer to Jesus' healing. Those words are never used in the context of demons. Instead, it uses a different word that most often gets translated casting out. So the language itself shows that like, this is different than just a kind of healing. And we, we see that also in the kinds of people that interact with Jesus. When Jesus is healing someone who's sick in some way, they address Jesus using very worldly kind of terms. They call him master. They call him Lord, which is just another way of saying master. It's like, it doesn't have to be a spiritual thing like it is now. Uh, uh, the most spiritual-ish that you can kind of get is when blind Bartimaeus referred to Jesus as son of David. But that is also just another way for saying descendant of David. And so when people are seeking healing, they're referring to Jesus in human terms. But when people who are possessed by demons talk to Jesus, they talk to him on spiritual terms, like what we see here. They address Jesus with titles like Holy One or Son of God or Son of the Most High. They talk to Jesus with information and knowledge that normal people don't have. It seems that there's something definitely different that's going on here as opposed to just the kinds of healings. It's not a kind of illness, be it uh, bodily or of the mind. And so we can't just ignore the existence of demons. But if we say that demons are real, it's important for us to also say that demons aren't behind every time technology acts up, right? Like, that, that, that's the other side of the horse that we can fall off of. As C.S. Lewis says, there are two equal and opposite errors in which we can fall. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So we can say that demons are real, but let's be discerning about that instead of trying to find them under every single rock. So, so let's go back to our passage now and look at how this demon is challenging Jesus's authority. It calls out, it says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's the addressing with Jesus with very spiritual terms there. And this demon, Mark says it's only one, but he, but, but, but he says, have you come to destroy us? There are times in Mark, in Mark 5, as Daniel alluded to down here, where we'll find one person who has multiple demons in them. But this is not that. Yet this demon is saying us. He's addressing Jesus on behalf of all demons. And so in this passage, we, we get a sense at how the forces of evil as a whole seek to oppose the authority of Jesus. And I, I think of it that, and we can think of it in these three ways, that the forces of evil seek to oppose the authority of, of, of Jesus by defiling, by disrupting, and by deceiving. Mark refers to demons here as unclean spirits, but another way of translating that phrase is a defiling spirit. It's defiling the, per the person it possesses. Evil is opposed to God, 
And when God made humanity, he said, you are made in my image. Humanity is very good. And so it makes sense that evil seeks to defile, to desecrate the pinnacle of God's creation. We, we see in Mark 9 how one father talking to Jesus, describing the work of the demon and his son, says that the demon would often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. The forces of evil seek to defile God's good creation. Evil also seeks to disrupt God's good work. Jesus is in the midst of teaching about himself, which is leaving the crowd astonished. And so the demon sees that and says, well, we can't let this happen. We, we, we have to cut it out. So he, he, he speaks up, he acts out to try and keep Jesus from doing what he's doing. He's trying to disrupt Jesus' good work. And lastly, we see that evil tries to deceive us into disbelieving God's good promises. The demon says, have you come to destroy us? And this is utterly true. Jesus would later say in Mark 3 that he comes to bind the strong man, a a figurative way of how he says he's coming to destroy the evil one. He's coming to destroy Satan. Jesus does come to destroy evil. But what evil would have us believe is that Jesus is also coming to destroy us. That God is out to get us, that his ways are not for our good. Evas wants to trick us into believing that God's posture towards us is the same as his posture towards evil. So evil would seek us to have us disbelieve God's good promises. Now, Not all defilement of God's good creation, not all disruption of God's good purposes, and not all deception around God's good promises stem from demonic activity. Like I said, as Christians, we've also traditionally pointed to the the flesh and, and to the world as things that can bring stuff like this about. So if if these things are happening in your life, it's not necessarily because of demons. But what we see here is that evil is actively opposing God and seeking to thwart his purposes, as demonstrated by this demon challenging Jesus' authority. Yet in response, we see Jesus prove his authority. Jesus responds in stride to this ill-intended, in, in, to this ill-intended interruption. We read how it says, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And the people were more amazed. And it it makes sense. I mean, I'd be amazed too if I saw an exorcism in, in person, right? So you 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 could imagine, well, of course that they're amazed for, for what they just saw. But the reality is that there's like a decent chance that that people there could have already seen an exorcism before in in their life. We we know from accounts outside of the Gospels from the time of Jesus that accounts of exorcism were not uncommon. But because of those accounts, we know that this exorcism was uncommon. Because in the other recorded instances of exorcisms that we have outside of the Bible— 
what we have is the exorcist, the person who, who's doing this, it always involves spells or rituals. It always involves an appeal to a power higher than themselves. They would appeal to the authority of an enchanted object. They'd appeal to the authority of a ritual that had been handed down to them. Now, we understand this idea in our everyday life. You might tell your coworkers or the people you manage, my boss told me to do this. From another authority, I'm saying you have to do this thing. Your teacher might say you have to, to do this from the authority they have from the principal. Uh, they're appealing to authority outside of themselves, but, but that's not what we see with Jesus. Jesus here appeals to no external authority. He simply says, be silent and come out. Why? Because he said so. Saying because I said so, if you're a parent, might work with your kids, but I encourage you to, to go outside and try using that same line of reasoning for the natural order or for the supernatural order, and I suspect your, your, your responses won't be the same. But that's what Jesus says. He just appeals on his own authority. He says, just because I'm Jesus, be silent. And that is why the people are amazed. That's why they're saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the, the, the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And what happens as a result of this? Well, his fame, his fame spreads everywhere throughout the region. And so we see that the evil's efforts in the end further God's cause. Jesus' authority is such that no evil can thwart his good purposes. When I talk about the good purposes of God, I'm not talking about like us getting the job that we want or our kids ending up the way that we want them to end up. I'm talking about God's good purposes of restoring us and all creation to himself to the defeat of sin and death once and for all. Of course, we know all too well that even though Jesus did this, there are still times in our lives where evil's disruption is far more than a momentary distraction in a religious service. Sometimes the disruptions are measured not in minutes out of a sermon, but in lives lost or years spent in agony. And you might be thinking, yes, I have that, but not because of demonic influence. What does this passage have to do with my life? Even if your suffering has not been caused by real personal forces of evil, this still provides hope because the things we talked about, the flesh and the world, in some way are downstream of ultimate evil. It came into the world when the serpent deceived Adam and Eve. And so everything else is downstream of this initial thing. So if Jesus can take, a, can take care of evil, he can take care of everything else. But we still might say, if he can do that, why isn't he? Why is there so much stuff that's wrong? And that's why we talk about how his kingdom is already and not yet. We can already get tastes and glimpses of how his purposes will ultimately prevail, but that's not fully realized. Evil having been backed into a, a corner, is taking all of its best shots while it still can. And when we suffer in light of them, 
it can feel cheap to say, oh, but it will all be okay one day. But in those moments, it can be helpful to remember that Jesus defeated evil by suffering at its own hand. He took on the cross and everything evil could throw at him. So whatever evil inflicted darkness you, you are walking in, it is not foreign to him. On the cross, he took everything evil could, could muster. And then for almost three days, it seemed like evil had won. Your time of darkness might last far longer than just three days. But because Jesus not only had the authority to rebuke demons, but also to rise from the grave, we can say with authority that that darkness will not have the last word in your life. That's why Paul says that, 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 that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor, nor rulers, nor, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor, nor death, that none of these can separate us from the love of God in, in Jesus. Paul says these things not just because it's comforting. He says these things not just because it's a good story. He says these things because it's true. Because Jesus' ultimate authority, God's good purposes will ultimately prevail. Please pray with me. God, we thank you that you have authority over all in this world. And we acknowledge that that does not yet look like what we want it to. But we look to you to still in the end make things right. So in our moments of weakness, where we feel overwhelmed by evil, where we feel overwhelmed by the world, where we feel overwhelmed by our flesh, help us to remember that you will prevail, that we are your good creation, that your work will not be disrupted and that your promises are good. Amen. Mm-hmm.